Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. There are two ways, in my estimation, to identify a narcissist. <laughs> you can do that clinically. And then the second one I'm going to mention on the podcast today is a bit more anecdotal, but it's true. <laughs> it's a truism. Um, and how do I know? Because I do a lot of couples counseling. And with that, most of the people that have the greatest difficulties with narcissists are, are their spouse uh, in an intimate sort of way. I, I don't know that. that I, yes, <laughs> numbers, uh, again, is somewhat out of my own personal experience, but I would say that the majority of the people who have really difficulties with narcissists would be those that are married to them. Or, if you're not married, whatever your particular preference would be in terms of that significant other relationship that somewhere along the line you have decided was the keeper. Now, for again the sake of the first way to determine a narcissist, I'm going to go to psychology today. And uh, with that, it would be the December 2022 edition and uh, it's an article, it's taken from an article by Eleanor Greenberg, PhD, a Gestalt therapy trainer and the author of Borderline Narcissistic and Schizoid Adaptations. Uh, I'm going to read the entirety of her uh, brief article here in a moment. Uh, this would just be an excerpt, uh, but the article's entitled The Widow Fantasy, and it's under the general category of in the Psychology Today, Magazine, Case Study, Abusive Bonds. Wishing for a narcissistic husband's death doesn't make you a bad person. Okay. Harsh truths about narcissistic love. A narcissist falls in love with their fantasy of you. Narcissists do not really fall in love with people. They fall in love with their projections of whomever they currently idealize as the perfect mate. They can sound convincingly in love, but they believe, temporarily, only in the fantasy version of a mate they've created in their mind. A narcissist will be disappointed with the real you. You will likely mistake their initial infatuation and their over-the-top idealization for something more enduring. It can't last because it's based on a fantasy. Narcissists will stop trying to impress you when they get to know you. They become disappointed because you are a real person. A narcissist will want you to change. <laughs> when your narcissistic lover discovers that you do not perfectly embody everything that they ever wanted in a partner, they start to suggest ways that you should change to become so-called better. A narcissist will devalue you as your narcissistic lover becomes more comfortable with you and increasingly unhappy about your flaws, the compliments will vanish and the devaluation begins. Suddenly, you have become stupid, ugly, and undesirable. Now, this is not <laughs> the diagnostic criterion as taken from the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. 
published by the American Psychiatric Association. This is again taken from a Psychology Today article written by Eleanor Greenberg. But she did write a book, <laughs> and it was entitled, or it is entitled, Borderline Narcissistic and Schizoid Adaptations. And she is in private practice, so she's just not a uh, professor, <laughs> academic, academic, I can't remember how to pronounce that. Someone who just sets in an ivory tower and pontificates. She's actually got hands on practice, much like any credibility that I might kind of go to when I talk about, I see a lot of them, <laughs> anytime I might, and the qualifier would be for me, they're anecdotal because they're just based on my own experience, but what is my experience? A lot of years of private practice work, working with couples. Eleanor Greenberg, academician, mission, mission, I'll never get it right. PhD, she is also a psychotherapist. I'm going to read the, uh, well, now I'll go to uh, the second way. You can tell, I'll read the article first, then I'll go the second way. Case study, abusive bonds, the widow fantasy, wishing for a narcissistic husband's death doesn't make you a bad person by Eleanor Greenberg, PhD. Some 40 years ago, a sweet, passive woman came to me for psychotherapy. She was married to a bossy and controlling man whom she had grown to dislike. She was afraid to divorce him and had many reasons not to do so. She hated to fight. He would likely seek revenge if she tried to leave him. She felt guilty about wanting a divorce. She was insecure and financially dependent on him. She was scared to confront him. She often dreamed that he had died in a plane crash while traveling for work. I pictured myself at the grave surrounded by mourners who are comforting me. I pictured myself wearing a black veil so no one could see my face. I was not crying or sad. I was relieved. She wouldn't have to go through a divorce. She wouldn't have to explain why she wanted him gone from her life. Everyone would think well of me because his death was not my fault, she said. In our time together, I work with this client on finding real-life solutions for her marital dilemma that did not depend on her husband's dying in a plane crash. Over the years, I have had several clients, all victims of narcissistic abuse, tell me almost the exact same story. They were married to men who emotionally or physically abused them, and who appeared to fit the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. These women were scared of their husbands and afraid to initiate a divorce. Some felt that they could not seek dissolution for religious, cultural, or practical reasons. Instead of taking action and leaving their abusive partner, they repeatedly found themselves fantasizing about his accidental death. Some men may have this fantasy as well, but I've heard about it only from a specific subset of my female clients. In almost every case, after years of marriage, the woman felt inadequate to manage life on her own. Conversely, women who were financially independent and were confident tended to pursue divorce. In all but one of these cases, the woman in therapy with me did not have a narcissistic personality disorder. Their spouse did. In that one case, a female client with closet narcissistic disorder, a less confident and more vulnerable form of the condition, expressed the widow fantasy. 
She said, I love my lifestyle. I love my home. I love where we live. I love being able to go on nice vacations and have enough money to dress well. My husband has a great job and earns a lot of money. The one thing that is wrong with my life is him. If he would just die, everything would be perfect. I find myself hoping he will die in a car or airplane crash whenever he leaves on a trip without me. According to this person, his accidental death would solve all her problems. She would keep her lifestyle and not have to go through a messy divorce. What this fantasy really means. If you've ever wished that your abusive husband would just disappear or die, you may be having a widow fantasy. This doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just indicates that you are too afraid to take real action to remove yourself from an abusive relationship. In addition, your spouse does not necessarily have to be narcissistic. He can be abusive without this personality disorder. Instead of waiting for something or someone to free you, you may want to start psychotherapy. Your goal would be to work on understanding and overcoming your fear of making the change you are seeking through the fantasy. Not the death of your husband, but the dissolution of your relationship. A submissive wife, a controlling and abusive husband, and a fear of initiating divorce are usually the basic elements of the widow fantasy. You can change at least two of these three items, which I presume would then be you can't do much with the controlling and abusive husband, but you don't have to submit to that any longer, and you could take action, such as leaving the relationship, initiating a divorce. Again, Eleanor Greenberg, Psychology Today, December of 2022, the widow fantasy wishing for a narcissistic husband's death doesn't make you a bad person. Well, I would certainly agree, no one should say, in an abusive relationship. But at what point does the relationship present itself as abusive? And, this gets to the second way you could tell, and as much as she said, basically, that she's only really known one case, I'll read the paragraph again, in all but one of these cases, the woman in therapy with me did not have a narcissistic personality disorder. Their spouse did. In that one case, a female client with a closet or with closet narcissistic disorder, she does acknowledge the author that there is a possibility that narcissists attract narcissists. And to the extent and degree that you might even be having a conversation about narcissism seems to suggest that somewhere at some level there's an awareness or realization of maybe not the DSM criteria or criterion, but at the same time maybe some of these uh, signs that I read earlier uh, as given by the author, uh, harsh truths about narcissistic love. But it seems to me that most relationships begin, at least with the desire, for somebody else to think you're great. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, um, to the extent or degree that the hook and all of this is at some point it changes, that's also a little fuzzy or a bit of a gray area for me as well because somewhere along the way, most relationships <laughs> that necessitate counseling, coming to see someone such as myself or Eleanor, 
are going to be relationships that have obviously not worked or turned bad. Are all of them evidence of narcissism? No. Are the ones that don't come in to see me necessarily or her evidence that they don't have narcissism? No. <laughs> but what it may suggest is that we all have to figure out how to get past ourselves in some way or dimension or to rightly appreciate ourselves in some measure before we get into a relationship period. I, I, I would not want to take anything away from infatuation. I think infatuation is great stuff. Uh, most relationships start with, you're my person. I've looked my whole life for this individual. Most people do not go, I would think, or are not going to go looking for people who are mean to them or don't think they're great in the first place. Or if they do, maybe that's a bit pathological in this sense. Even should they then somehow want to prove themselves better than what the other person thinks they are, why would you spend your whole life with somebody who is from the very get-go thought that you weren't quite what they would have wanted, as in measuring up? <laughs> and I don't know anyone who doesn't begin a relationship with that thought in mind, sort of projecting onto the other individual what it is that they want them to be. You, you might have even talked about it. Uh, and in your passion <laughs> and sincere, genuine at that stage, a point in the relationship, desire to believe this is the one, otherwise you would not be progressing quickly, fast, toward the end of that sort of committed dimension of a keeper, marriage or otherwise, whatever once more you would call it. But somewhere along the way, everybody figures out the other person doesn't really measure up to their fantasy. Now, usually at that point, I think the ones that succeed, typical of the ones that succeed, at that point, in a healthy, adaptive way that doesn't have some element of, again, pathology or sickness, like such as the article identifies with this narcissistic love, then the widow's fantasy, which is sort of the beginning of homicide. I'm not saying it is, but that the person would commit some act of killing someone else. But when you begin to think of wanting somebody dead, it's sort of like suicide. When you begin to think that you might want to be dead, most of us in the industry are going to say, that's an early sign of at least the, the, the greater, greater compared to uh, the norm. Hopefully not everybody starts there or not everybody has an experience like that. But if you have some inclination to eventually get to suicide, that's where it begins. If you have an inclination to uh, murdering someone or killing someone, committing homicide, I would think this might be one of those signs. And as the article sort of captures, when you get to the point of disillusionment, where the infatuation sort of wears off, you have to do something different with it. The ones that succeed, they begin to look at the reality. Now, maybe it is coming to talk to someone who supposedly represents objectivity and a better chance, everything taken into consideration, how you grew up, your friends, even your narcissistic spouse, 
who thinks, by the way, they're great. Why? Because they, you told them you were, they were, or you wanted them to be, and they bought into it. I finally found somebody who thinks I'm fantastic. Well, when you begin to see that, how you manage that reality, that's important. It goes both ways. Uh, I'm not saying the article seems to project it, projection, have it go one way or the other. Academia. <laughs> one way or the other. Uh, but it does seem like as much the title is the widow fantasy, it's definitely sort of biased toward women. I'm not saying it has a gender bias. Actually, I'm saying it's just the opposite. She acknowledges that, but she doesn't spend much time exploring that. Maybe, again, her personal experiences, professional experiences within uh, personal experiences within a professional sort of context has not allowed her to work so much with the men. Maybe her interests were mostly with the women. I mean, all that gets factored in. But I think it would be wrong to take from the article that it is only women that get into relationships with narcissistic men. And as much as even this sort of represents somebody who is very dependent upon the narcissist, that sort of <laughs> suggests pathology too. And she does address that. You need to face your fears. You need to overcome them. She pointed out those that have jobs, have financial resources, are not bound to those relationships. I think all of that's important in the sense of negotiating when the reality kind of comes home to roost. But isn't that also what those relationships are about? Continued growth. Most people have to accept they're not perfect. And all that that went into the front end, maybe at some point along the way when the infatuation wears off and the other person or you stop telling reciprocally the other person that they're the greatest thing in the world. Um, we shouldn't scrap the relationship. Now, again, narcissists, it wasn't in the criteria that I read a, a moment ago, or at least the uh, points that uh, harsh truths about narcissistic love. But narcissists don't take that well because it's threatening. Their feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, low self-esteem, which probably was a, a, a large measure of the motive. <laughs> Find somebody who loves you for who you are. Idea love. I, I think that that is okay too because at some level we all want that unconditional love. Narcissists though are hard to sort of hold <laughs> in any sort of place long enough to really give them the feedback. It's painful. They're incredibly insecure. Uh, I don't think the article emphasized that, maybe didn't even go to that. I would want to say that though. Clinically speaking, that's what it takes to make a narcissist, but who doesn't have low self-esteem? <laughs> Who hasn't had some struggles with self-esteem? And who doesn't look to others to affirm them? And while you're trying to figure out how to affirm yourself and to do that in right measure of balance, because sometimes feedback is good. You're really not living up to the promise. Let's see if we can look at this and sort it out. There has to be enough strength, ego strength, to admit that you got problems. 
In that way, we're all somewhat narcissistic because that's a tough thing to admit. And even when you find someone who goes around saying, I've got all kinds of problems. Many times, that really kind of plays to narcissism as well in this way. They're willing to give you that simply because in that way, they don't have to face those problems with any sort of accountability. They've already given that disclosure. I got a, a lot of problems. I have self-esteem issues. Uh, I'm not going to follow through on the commitments that we've made. I'm not going to continue to work on the relationship. I'm going to drift off to find somebody else who thinks I'm great when you stop telling me I'm great. I'm not going to continue my own personal growth. Relationships that are successful when it comes to self-actualization really, at a premise, include people who are strong enough of character. They can admit their mistakes with the intention of not becoming the victim, <laughs> but staying in it, working through it. And who better to do that with than somebody else? And should you pair with someone... And should we all be somewhat narcissistic? I don't know that you're going to ever find that end of true self-love without including your requirement to love somebody else. But somebody else who isn't necessarily going to take advantage of that or exploit that. I give the article that. I give Eleanor that. We don't want to find that person. But we're all a bit narcissistic. And I have to oftentimes call both parties out on that. Not just to make it fair, but to get past this idea. Well, how do I know you're a narcissist? <laughs> because I'm not. Well, that's probably not true. <laughs> Actually, I'd say, and that was the second way you could tell. If you're talking to somebody and you've married a narcissist, you probably are have some of that. But good news. <laughs> Everybody's got some of that. And whether you did or didn't get that affirmation growing up as a child, maybe that's why you're so eager to find somebody who thinks you're great because nobody, as you were growing up, was there to validate, affirm, to love you in that way. Maybe they harmed you. Maybe they were abusive and tore you down. But going out into the world and looking for somebody else that really believes in you, it's important, but you still have to learn to believe in yourself. And that's the only way you do that by staying in a committed relationship and working through that. And maybe you grew up in a home where there was an abundance of that and now you're out in the real world and you don't think you're the greatest thing in the world. You're not the superstar. You don't make the millions, billions of dollars that some people seemingly make these days. You don't have the right zip code. You don't have the right appearance. Uh, yes, people should learn to love you and you love people, but you've got to learn to love yourself in order for you to love other people and to receive the love people have for you. The unfortunate thing about narcissism in, and I'm going to, narcissism is, narcissism is, and I'm going to uh, kind of go reference the article once more, not knowing Eleanor Greenberg any better or more than what you might as I've read this. 
But when you're setting in a counseling setting and it's all about you, it's not about the therapist, um, you're going to get a one-sided picture. That's okay. I want to tell you you're great. I won't lie to you. I'm going to find the great things about you. But I'm also going to tell you, hopefully you'll receive it, where you may be a bit weak. And yes, she does say there's a lot of fear there. But to point fingers at somebody else without first understanding, we're all narcissists. We begin that way. It's, we're egocentric as a child. First experiences in life, we're the center of everything. Why? Because we don't even have a sense for individuation. Academician. That's the word. Academician. We don't even know so much how to separate ourselves from others until our brain gets to a certain point of development and accomplishes that milestone. It's at that point we begin to construct identity. And with that, self-esteem. How do you love yourself? And your earliest experiences are what others do and say and how they treat you. And if it's really, again, skewed, extreme, one way or the other, to the good or the extremely bad, you've got a lot of adjusting to do when you get out in the real world. And looking for a partner that can grow with you, that's the only way you're going to do that. Then you can say, well, I'll just move from this one to a better version. And maybe there's some truth to that. I do think people can, can divorce and they can find love. But I don't know that it's all that radically different. The next relationship, it might be a bit better. You may have learned some lessons. But that self-love thing, it's usually constructed within a lifetime. It's not somebody coming along and saying, you're great, you're great, you're great. Now, again, they may say it with great passion and conviction and all that that goes into the romantic ideal of finding your person. But somewhere along the line, we've got to come to terms with that reality that we've got to make it more than what we project or what we ideally want it to be, even though the ideal and the projection in itself isn't bad. That's what we want. We want you to end up loving each other and thinking those thoughts. But the transformation or the working through or that, again, negotiating that from some level or some degree of independence and autonomy with enough self-esteem or enough sense of confidence in yourself to be able to do that work without bailing, sabotaging, self-destructing, or killing, <laughs> killing yourself, or killing the other person. That's the chore. It shouldn't be that hard, though, because when you begin to realize if you're doing that to the other person, you're doing that to yourself. My job is to affirm. My job is to understand what you're aspiring to. My job is to help you to, in the best way I can, with all the information I have, anecdotally, as well as evidence-based research, all the studies, all the courses, the continuing education, the journals, the data that I'm constantly consuming to stay current with trends and facts about psychology and the art, the practice of psychological counseling. 
But my job is to, in a respectful way, point out, you've got problems too. Let's work on them together. Now, it may at that moment, as we would do that in therapy, it may be a realization that we all come to. The other person isn't going to try. They don't have that. And in that case, you can't stay with them. And in that case, they're going to continue to be abusive or what they do is going to continue to hurt and harm. And, and I don't want to lessen the idea that abuse is, is more um, directed or proactive. It's not just reactive. So we're not saying that they're passively. The article mentioned a passive or closet narcissist. Uh, if you're in an abusive relationship and that person shows no inclination to own their problems and work on it, get out of it. Don't stay in it. Find the courage to leave. Find the resources. Find the supports. Go to a therapist, a psychological counselor, a psychotherapist who can affirm you, who can agree with you in your implicit value and worth to not have to continue to subject yourself to this, who can help to support you while you're learning to support yourself, and who can then, in transition terms, help you get through this particular point or stage in your life and hopefully can find the love you're looking for from someone else help you heal and work through that recovery but I think most hopefully not those that are trained in psychology and psychological counseling and who read psychology today hopefully those individuals aren't going to start to point fingers and buy into that idea or the notion that you're coming in and they're only getting one side of it and, and not going to tell you there's two sides to it and maybe normalize it in that sense, not so that you'll stay, but so that you'll be able to understand. It goes both ways, but also so you'll know what you need to work on. If you're being a victim, if you're blaming somebody else for all your problems, and if that's what the relationship has sort of fallen into, then the widow's fantasy or the widow fantasy is kind of a way also of not only getting out, but it's getting out without accepting that you had something to do with it in some measure. Once more, I'm not talking about people who are physically being abused, emotionally being abused, those that have risk of physical and emotional damage or harm, I'm talking about most individuals that come see me for couples counseling, relationship counseling. And with that, I'm not going to necessarily say, well, you should stay or stay. I'm going to say, well, if you leave, then this would be the possible result of that. You have to make the decision. I'm not living there. I don't know that person maybe in that way that you do. Uh, I may know the person. They may have come in with you to see me but they may not be telling or showing their real selves in the counseling session. But I have to trust you, but I do need to tell you, <laughs> we're all narcissistic. And the moment that we begin to want to get rid of everybody else <laughs> and not look at ourselves is the, the moment or the minute that we begin to indulge that victim ideology or mentality. Certainly, victims should find the strength to protect themselves. 
But be careful because if you don't really understand it fully, you'll go out and repeat it. That's what I've been saying, likely. And you're still doing it to yourself. You're not loving yourself in the way that you want that other person to love you. And so you are harming yourself as much as you would be thinking of harming someone else. You have also the capability, capacity, maybe already actualized that, of self-destruction. You're not taking all the data in. You're not advantaging from the perspective that the psychological counselor can offer you. And in that sense, then maybe you do individual first. In that sense, maybe you separate. Maybe you leave if it's, again, abusive. There's plenty of ways to accomplish that moment, or at least try to accomplish or logistically establish that opportunity to step outside so you can see yourself of that relationship for who you really are and hopefully then trust the person that you're talking to to be honest and with all positive regard knowing that there is legitimate risk of harm but also knowing you're the only one that really can determine how much of a risk and trying to provide all the data that is available so that you can make the best decision, staying or going. But if you leave, you still have to heal. If you leave and you should choose to find love, you're still going to go through something like this again because I believe all relationships have the mention of narcissism. I believe that's the problem with humanity. We're very phenomenologically driven. We're very egocentric. The early stages of our life, we don't even have the ability to adopt another person's perspective until the brain, the apparatus we call the brain, comes online or the whole bodily operational systems come online in such a way that allows us to. I want to help you. I want you to see it for what it is. But I would also be cautionary to just point out, just make sure you realize you married the person and there's probably some element of that in you. And if it wasn't there to begin with, which is very unlikely, it's certainly in there now. And uh, we've got to work through that. The Widow Fantasy by Eleanor Greenberg, Ph.D., a Gestalt therapy trainer and the author of Borderline Narcissistic and Schizoid Adaptations. Wishing for a narcissistic husband's death doesn't make you a bad person. Case study, abusive bond, psychology today, December of 2022. What are you listening to? <laughs> You're listening to Word <laughs> with Dave Clay. Uh, we do the podcast again to inform, to encourage, to try to provide some additional sort of help or assistance so you can make a good decision about whether or not you want to engage a therapist, a psychologist, a social worker, psychological counselor to assist in uh, your discovery and your adapting to life and your loving yourself. <laughs> I hope the podcast helped in that way. Should they? Should they? Should they? I'd like to invite you back then to the next episode of Word with Dave Clay. Until then, good health and good mental health.